Hello and welcome to Tools in the Shed, a podcast powered by Cars Guide, ready to rip into car stuff that's caught our eye this week. I'm James, and with me is our fearless leader, Cars Guide editor, Mal Flynn. Good morning, James. And a super special guest in the shape of Brian Tanty, a giant in the classic car world, and he has special in- insight into the newer ones as well, um, which is great. We have the opportunity to hear about what he's up to with a new Sydney venture and touch on some of the uh, long experience with the Lindsay Fox collection and museum and special cars and their owners all over the globe. So we'd, we'd like to talk with him. It's a very special event um, for us. And we'll update you on the darling of the Twitterati in this week's Muskwatch. Uh, it's all happening on that score, so stay with us. But first of all, some feedback which is always great to get. And uh, David Anderson, the man who wants Mal to stay on mic and me to tone it down, gave us a shout. Thanks, David. Um, We're aiming to lift our game. We've been practising. Our old mate Hammer Rocks also chipped in with an often neglected um, some angles on the topic of EVs. Uh, That is the cost of replacement batteries and depreciation and one influencing the other. Uh, In that he says some years ago he was looking at three- to five-year-old hybrids for his daily commute but learn batteries need to be replaced every uh, seven to eight years, and the cost was equal to the value of the car. So he bought a diesel. And it's just something that is often lost in the conversation about EVs, that at this point, uh, replacement batteries are quite expensive. So that's a fantastic point. Also, don't discount the cost of replacement inverters. Yeah, uh, the whole the whole bit, yes. Yeah, my understanding is that a lot of the time, that's the most expensive component. Sure. So it's a, it's a good reminder, yeah. uh, I reckon. Also, Beth Tender has gone completely off chops. She says uh, she's changed her name to Cleary. Wants an invite onto the show is PR manager for NSU. She was at Trabant. Um, <laughs> says, in real life, I have an afro. That's me. James Cleary has an afro. I've seen it. Uh, plus, Richard wears knee-high Ugg boots and nothing else. Um, look, agrees on the need to adjust the microphones, but mainly to obscure our faces on YouTube. And finished with a theory about Elon uh, going electric to avoid manual gearboxes and resulting bad puns about musk sticks. Right, so <laughs> few. Um, it sounds like we need them on as a guest. She's terrific. Uh, now, look with a name like Beth. I'm presuming it is a woman. Turns out Chapo's channel doesn't have ambient lighting in his Merc Prime Mover, but does like to check out what mood lighting Ben's car drivers are running to gauge their state of mind. You know, so ah. he can just look down. I think that's a great tip. So th- thanks to everyone who gave us that <laughs> feedback. Keep it coming. Uh, I'm a little bit worried about uh, Beth Tender, but we'll see what she comes up with this week. If you're in Sydney, let us know. Yes. But moving on to our main event for this week, we're joined uh, by Brian Tanty, um, a long-time uh, you purveyor know, of his skills, coach-building skills, um, a, a metal guru able to uh, you know, do things with wheels and hammers and all of that to keep fantastic classic vehicles on the road and at sometimes bring them back to life. So, Brian, give us a, a kind of thumbnail of your backstory and what's brought you up to, to Sydney. Um, well, the uh, I, I started off in the trade back in no, late 1979 and uh, trained as a coach builder. And, of course, a coach build, builder is somebody that uh, works pretty much like an automotive tailor where they kind of shape the metal and give it three-dimensional form and build handmade cars. And, of course, that was predominant early um, in the beginning of the century when the aristocracy of the day were getting yeah. coach builders to make parts and so on. And things were generally one-offs. Correct, correct. Limited and, production. And we're talking kind of horse-drawn coaches, yeah? Correct. Yes. And and then as as <coughs> the 
the motor car evolved, the coach builders were then kind of relegated to doing more uh, bespoke, high-end vehicles. So uh, particularly both in Italy and and uh, England, you know, where they were making one-offs or four-of or five-of. Uh, but um, a lot of the early handmade cars in uh, were production cars, yep. but, but were built... They were automated somewhat, but so still a, handmade. a rolling chassis was just delivered to the the coach yep. builder, and off yep. you go. Yeah, a bit like a two hundred and fifty Ferrari, yep. where where you had you know ten different bodies available for that one particular chassis. Yeah, yeah. Know, so it was along those lines. Yes. So and, yeah. and we all know that's how Holden existed for the first forty odd years of well, it's correct of exactly uh, life as an organisation. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> so you were schooled in in those skills. Yes, I, I started off as a panel beater and then yep. went to the UK and spent time there and uh, learnt the craft and yep. came back here and practised the craft here. So, Because uh, there are some amazing shops in, in the UK. It's a real hub, isn't it, for, for that kind of classic car industry? Oh, it is, particularly south where, you know, where the Vickers Aircraft Factory was post-war. Right. A lot of the guys came out of the... Aviation and aircraft industry, oh, of course, and through Surrey and all those areas where there was a lot of people. What, Crosthwaite and Gardner that that did yes. they recreate the Audis like the Silver yeah. Arrow Audis and yeah and what they have did you? yeah, yeah so there's a lot of those skills came out of that area yeah and um, and of course you know they generate some of them are third and fourth generation mm. uh, coach builders so yes. they're really the you know I think England is really the uh, uh, the the uh, cultural home of of coach building, so yeah, to speak. Right, yeah, right, right, right. So you went over there to uh, do your time and, and learn all of that Yep. and presumably came back to Australia or went elsewhere? You no, came no, back to Australia? I came back to Australia yep. and um, then started working for a Rolls-Royce dealership in Melbourne doing a lot of early uh, Silver Ghosts and wow, cars really? like that, which was a lot of fun. Right. And uh, for R.A. McDermott and um, a lot of the guys that came out of that particular hub then... Uh, were were very good at what they did and opened their own businesses and so we all worked together in one form or another right uh, either contracting or together yes doing many of the early Italian cars that were at the time left in the country and as they become more desirable the English collectors were coming over buying everything rare that was right-hand drive, so very few of them are here today. So you were part of a coach-building rat pack that yep. just, you know... <laughs> That's probably the best <laughs> way. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So, yes, and, and so there were there were pickings to be had um, with Australian cars. There were. Because yeah. I suppose, not on the coast, but there'd be some that would be in very good condition in terms of rust or other things. Well, they we were... We're, we've got a much drier environment, yeah. so there's less... Uh, Less of the corrosion that you saw in the laminations of metal uh, than you would in the UK, and yep. the UK collectors, you know, were were just seized on that, yep. and uh, came out here and bought a lot of those Ferraris that it, that were bought by farmers off the sheep's back, so to speak. Yes, where where a lot of there was a lot of wealth in the country then, and and many of those cars have just gone. Yeah, I imagine there'd be plenty sitting around that you know had a simple mechanical issue that you know couldn't be fixed and. Two hard baskets yep. there, waiting yeah, but, for someone to discover. Yeah, but quite often the cars were put together so badly in many respects they were going to mm. rust anyway, whether it was yeah. a dry yeah. environment or not. There was yeah. no proof coating, none of that. Um, welds just exposed in bare metal. Sometimes it weren't even cleaned down, so all the oxidisation was there underneath the paint. You know, you'd strip mm. it, and there it was. You so know. would there would there be an owner who wants their car restored to be like that? 
to be imperfect you know, as, it, as it came yeah. out of the coach builders? Well, there's, there's two schools of thought to this and there are, there are people that say that, that want it exactly the way it was hmm. and, and so therefore everything that goes with it. But then there are others that um, they modernise it a little bit. For example, where, where you can't use the original processes anymore, so now everything's waterborne, paints it's harder to get those yep. older nitrocellulose colors now although you still can get them mm. um they they tend to use modern materials to make it a bit more durable and and uh but um a lot of what we call in the museum world you know the cultural information that goes with the build all the all the bad welds and so on and and all of that you, you actually build that into the job so you're curbing your instinct to make it better yeah. but you're simply doing it to preserve that data right so when you look underneath the bodywork and you see all the original hammer marks and crimp marks yes some people will body deaden that and they'll they'll rub it all away and and, and uh, file it right. and they make it look beautiful smooth like a hot yep. rod so to yep. speak yes they also just panel gaps in general well, correct the whole well, the, of it. that's the one area where I I kind of draw the line <laughs> <laughs> you can't put in a bad panel no gap. Well, look yeah. when I worked for when I worked for Lindsay it was it was um it was great because Lindsay had a very good relationship with the Mercedes-Benz and they would give us a one-to-one scale drawing of a Gullwing or a 300SL Roadster and give you all the surface data. It was a seven-metre long drawing and it give you all the surface data to build that car. And when you look at what the mechanic, what the designers had drawn, you know, they'd drawn cars and they'd specified very um, good and tight gaps. They I didn't see. draw bad gaps. I see. But what happens down the production line are two totally different things. So, but you know, the drawing gives you permission, correct, to make it right. Yeah, Fantastic. correct. So to me, there's like a mandate there yeah. to follow. Yeah. And um, also, also in when you look at the side elevation of a 300 SL Gullwing or Roadster, you know, you look at the bodywork and where the lines flow from the guard into the door and then out into the into the quarter panel. There's like a coke bottle kind of beautiful line through it in the drawings on the factory built cars you'd notice that the the door when it was closed the quarter panel and the and the door would run in and then run very very flat so the highlight would look different so if we were making a gullwing door we would make sure that it had that beautiful highlight in it you know so Great. it was it Great. was closer to the original, original designs yeah. yes but then if you were on the inside of the engine bay and so on, all the original welding that was looked like it was done by you know the the, the apprentices more than the <laughs> tradesmen, uh, we would actually build that into it. So when you look at you look at it and say, oh yeah, that looks pretty original. That right. looks how it was. So well, yeah, and I think that's really critical. I've seen cars that haven't been done like that, yeah. and they end up looking just that little bit different. And and for for people listening and viewing. The Lindsay reference is to a certain trucking magnate who's a, a, a yes. business business person with fingers in many pies, yes. but also is uh, a number one car enthusiast and has a collection slash museum yep. that you were connected with for a long period of time. Almost 30 years. Yes, yes. exactly. Yep. So that was we, we, it, the transition from collection to museum. Were you working with Lindsay when that happened? I or? was. Yeah, yeah. I, I was with Lindsay when we were first in Hawthorne Road, Caulfield, and it was a, a tiny, small, you know, 5,000 square foot factory next to a tyre dealership. And and then uh, once the... Yeah. <laughs> Once the dealership, uh, once the um, the 
arrangement, the lease had been organised for the Queen's building, we then relocated to Queen's with nothing. And, right. And it was at a time in Docklands where you wouldn't recognise it today, where there was literally it was the Queen's building and a series of obsolete... Pretty bare. You know. Yeah, industrial. Uh, ob- obsolete kind land. of rail yards with yeah. tumbleweeds, you know, yeah, blowing right. across the whole thing. It right, was, right. It was, it was the wild, wild west back then. <laughs> And uh, there were people shooting up in the in, in the court. We're finding syringes everywhere, and you know, but the place um, really you know changed over time. Yeah. And I was with him from the start right. through to the implementation of the museum. So was that taking vehicles that uh, Lindsay Fox already owned? And supplementing it with others to make a museum, or it just happened organically that the well at the time we had, grew over time. Yeah, we we had somewhere in the order of uh, 130 vehicles. Wow! And then 40 of them were handed over to the trust, and then the trust um, they they were in that in that building and, and stayed in that building. Right. And they were separate to the main fleet. Yep. So they were managed independently of of Lindsay. Yep. Through a trust. And what was your scope of work? Was it was it all to do with body work? Would you also sub out mechanical type work? Were you kind of in control? Well, of I, I had a I had a fairly big role there. I, I went from really being on the tools to manager of vehicle operations, and then yep. I, I was director of the museum for a while yep. as well. And that was everything from interaction, engagement with the local community. Right through to ringing up the suppliers or someone Fantastic. supposed to be doing work for us that wasn't doing work, and you know, getting down the Great. phone and getting on their backs and all that kind of Great. stuff. So it was, Great. it was, it, it was a combination of quite a few things. All right. yeah. And for anyone who doesn't realise, this this collection spans all sorts of eras. You know, yeah, so right up the, to he's got an yeah, Enzo, oldest, hasn't he? Yeah, the oldest vehicle would be a 1934, a 228 Cabriolet, and uh, the most modern now, I, I think, is one of the Later, gen- I think it's got one of the last Mercedes F ones, the current supercar that's coming out. Right. So he's got quite a few, uh, and everything in between. Yes. The the one. Yes. Oh crikey! Yeah, I I hear he's getting one. So <laughs> that's that's no surprise. And um, yeah. how how does I, I know he and his family kind of exercise some of these vehicles from time to time? Was that done on a formal basis to make sure that cars were drivable and and that they were used from time to time? Um. Well, at at that particular time, I was really the only one looking after the maintenance of them, so it was a tough part of the job, and that's why I get to drive. Great. But, but in the early days, that was, um, I used to, once Lindsay bought Avalon Airport, I could ring up the airport and say, look, what's happening today, and uh, or do you have any time to slot me in to run a few, a few of the cars? Mm. And, and they'd say, look, uh, we've got Japan Airlines this week, Qantas this week doing circuit training. Yeah. But apart from that, it wasn't a commercial airport. So uh, if you come next week, you'll be fine. So I'd, I'd, I'd go down there with three or four cars and we'd run them, uh, get them up to running temperature up and down the runway Brilliant. a few times. Brilliant. And, you know, uh, sometimes the red line in every gear just to really blow them out. And, <laughs> Italian and, tune-up. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're talking, you know, cars like 959 Porsche, you yeah. know. the, the uh, F40. F40. Yeah. Yeah, wow. the the and uh, people say we have the dream job, James. Yeah, yeah. Five, the, yeah the, the F50 and and uh, XJ220, and and it's, I mean, it was it was quite a unique experience to drive so-called supercars, and you can see why people call them supercars yeah. because they are just a cut above everything else in yeah. terms of their performance, their braking, the, you know, the the lot, and and to go down that runway at near on three hundred kilometres an hour, yeah. and it's a three point four uh, kilometre runway. And then go down with the safety officers at 
a hundred kilometres an hour. You know, we're never going to get to the other end. You know, it's kind of like so you can read War and Peace on the way down. You know, it's the, like, um, the, also the F40, taking off in a plane. Yeah, oh, the F40 right. is one that puts me in mind of that. You know, original condition because looking at an F40, there are spits on the welds, and it's not you know a oh, neat car. It's and the very carbon weave showing the paintwork. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, uh, the it's the other thing. If if you want to look at how an automotive industry evolves in terms of their fit and finish look at a supercar because you can see the early inroads into into uh, composite materials and how they were yes. used and and uh, the print of the of the uh, carbon fiber the weave of the carbon fiber coming through in the skin right and how that evolved to the so even to the Enzo where there's none of that at all and mm. also the the types of carbon fiber you know Correct. the different weaves That's and thicknesses right. and all yep. that stuff I also worry about how the epoxy ages in a carbon. Well, that's that's a interesting uh, comment because we did have problems with the XJR15, which had uh, carbon that was starting to delaminate. Right. And um, yeah, we. I mean, you just don't know what you don't know in terms mm. of how long it's going to last. Yeah. Okay. And then, so we better move on. There are two areas sure. I'd love to get to. Yep. One being your move to Sydney, and also um, after that. Your position on craft skills and and means of passing those skills on to following generations. So, sure, the move to Sydney first. Well, I I was dating a Sydney girl for the best part of three and a half years, and and um, which is a long way from Melbourne. It was a long way from <laughs> Melbourne, so it's kind of a long distance thing. And people say they don't work. Well, they do work. It just depends on how hard you prepare to work. <laughs> you know? Yep, and and um, and so the it came to a point where. I think it just made sense to to either make the leap of faith and move up, and it was a big move on so many fronts, you know, because there's um, family elements, you know, um, all of my kids are growing up and doing yep. their own thing, and I've got I've got two girls living in the UK now, and so they're all independent um, uh, people, and to you know to make that move up north and leave a job that I'd been in for the best part of 30 years. You know, it was a big, big change. You bet. So, um, and coming to terms with all of that, you know, was was uh, pretty hard. But once um, I got here, I did have a couple of aspirations. It was projects I wanted to do and obviously the 550s that I'm, I'm, I'm now building. So and that's 550 Spider exact replica yep, Porsches? Be, yeah, it'll be... Exact in every detail to the you know to the manufacturer's uh, spec right through and uh, leaving no stone unturned in Fabulous. terms of wow. authenticity Fabulous. and it I mean the level of work in each of those builds is a bit like um, building a genuine car. In they terms can of they can hours. slip you a chassis number, can't they? You know uh, you've they got could, a good but they won't. <laughs> <laughs> when I was building Lindsay's five fifty, yeah, we we couldn't even get um, you know drawing detail. From, right. from Porsche. Wow. Very we had a great relationship that, yeah. with Mercedes, but we just couldn't get what we needed from from Porsche for whatever right. reason at the time. Right. But um, uh, I had to turn to America to get all that detail and and, yep. and was very fortunate there to... Great. So have they are those cars going to be built to um, a commission or are you building them on spec? Have people already put their hand up to own these cars? No, well, I'm, I'm looking for the hands if they're I've out got there. got you, so, right, right. So if, if, if they're around, please please come and talk to us. <laughs> what but, if we haven't yeah. mentioned the James Dean factor yet. Yeah. Like this this is the car that James Dean famously passed away in. So if you Correct. Wanted to, you it know, was, yeah. yeah, it was a slice of James Dean, Dean actually elevated to, to, to cold status. The, you know? the little bastard. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's, and, oh, sorry, not James and Dean. That was painted on the back of his car. He nicknamed <laughs> I thought he was referring to him. I oh, and Matt. Cooley. No, that goes without saying. I am yeah. little and, you know, <laughs> yeah. from time to time. <laughs> I have been known to be called a bust. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, put your hand up if you haven't. James no Dean nicknamed his 550 Spider Little Bastard. Little Bastard. That's right. written on the back of And it was, I want to say, the person, unfortunately, that he T-Bone crashed with was Turnip Speed. Turnip Speed. And a 52 Ford Tudor. Yeah. Yes, because for those who are interested, we do have a story on Oversteer called Death Metal about uh, famous people meeting their Nothing end to do in with a motor music. car. Nothing yeah. to do with music, and uh, obviously he's he's a high-profile one. Yeah. yeah. It's, when you look at the build of a 550, you just see that he had absolutely right. no chance in hell. Yeah. One of the things, when I used to drive Lindsay's car, I, I once brought Lindsay's um, 550, which is the very car built after Dean's car. It's a chassis 56, <gasps> right. by the way. And this is the blue car, is The blue it? one. Wow. Dean's car is 55. What? I, I brought that up to Sutton Forest for a visa card shoot, and we're driving it through the hills, and you get in this car and you think, you know, this really does feel like a coffin. It could... It wow. could the one thing that strikes is how unsafe the whole thing yeah. feels. You know, it's yeah. just literally a chassis with aluminium foil around you yeah. in many respects. Yes. What's the curb weight on a 550? Uh, about 650 kilos. What? Right. So, That's unheard yeah. of. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So a quarter you, of the weight of well, a Land 680 Cruiser. kilos, I think. You've got like that, yeah. that on the go. You've, you've also, I would imagine, you've got contacts and people that you know all over the world, but you would have people that you have worked with previously in Sydney. So that's a bit of a head start. Sure. Um, yeah. You were talking when we were talking off air about um, making relationships with suppliers. That's been a bit of a challenge because you get yep. so used to relying on particular people. Oh, the thing is, at, at the Fox Museum, you know, you had the, the <coughs> name of the Fox Museum that was there, but really the people that I used at the museum were all, as I was saying earlier, you know, they were a default speed dial on my phone. Yes. They knew me. Yeah. I knew them. They yeah. dropped whatever they were doing to, you know, do things for you. But you use them not because they were prepared to drop what they were doing, but because they were very, very good at what they do. Yeah. So when you come to a new state, it's like you've got to, you have to build these relationships all over again. Yeah. You know, and part uh, recommendation, part trial and error. Exactly. Yes. And and quite often, you know, the recommendation is very subjective. So someone says someone's really good, but you don't really know until you actually use them. Yes. Yeah. And 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 so sometimes it's it's a leap of faith, and you know, it's a learning curve. But but in some ways, that's great too. Yeah. It's kind of it it reinvigorates great you know that 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 whole process of trying to find and work with people so you've established btw brian tanty's workshop yep which is in artaman correct in sydney three levels and uh, yes three levels so an, a, a driving underground and yep. then middle and top full of fantastic stuff cars yep. part tools, exhibition space part, part exactly workshop, that's correct part so dream factory yes well, if you want to have your wedding or special function brian yeah. tanny's workshop is we can't, uh, we can't consider getting married yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well one of the things we found in particularly in the early days of the museum when we first moved into uh, docklands our the person that laid all the all the carpets said, look, can I bring some of my people over and just do an evening for them? No problem. From that, it just skyrocketed. We're people contacting us who were doing um, events and product launches for all sorts of groups, everything from yeah. fashion shows to tools to uh, pharmaceutical companies. They were all using the museum. And, and, and they, that was word of mouth. 
It was word of mouth. Yeah. Primarily it was. Wow. And um, we made it available to all caterers because uh, we, we were apolitical in that way. We didn't have a particular caterer. And quite often the people were looking for, they were interested to use a venue but not particularly interested in using a particular caterer. So we'd make it available to everybody. Yeah. And the events really worked well. And what we found was there was a growing trend towards um, using the workshop. So the workshop became, again, another point of interest. And it was interesting to note how popular a visit and a corporate event was with people that had absolutely no interest in motor cars. Yeah, right. But were just interested in going into a space that was a little bit different, a little bit grungy, An understanding authentic skills. Authentic environment. Yeah. Yes. And... And we didn't blind them with the point-to-point maths of how fast cars were and how much time was involved, but people that weren't interested in motor cars would just love the process. It's it was a bit like a kind of automotive grand designs experience, you know, where people were seeing that 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 whole evolution of a car, or they smell the leather and they'd look at how things were being made and and really loved that, really engaged with that. Mel and I, you were kind enough to invite us to the opening for your workshop in Sydney. And, yeah, we had a lot to look at and can absolutely understand what you're saying. You want to look at every little detail and what's going on because there's some stuff you're familiar with and other stuff you're not. There's always something to learn. It was fabulous. And it's interesting to see how popular, you know, the advent of these cable television shows about car building. It's a whole channel dedicated to people building stuff and making yeah. stuff yeah and i think that's exotically un- unfamiliar to a whole generation now yeah. and i think that's part of the charm of it and yes. what we found was that corporate entities were booking the workshop to kind of make some kind of um, universal or sub- symbolic gesture towards excellence with their product got you and so what i've done is i've taken that concept and and brought it up with us to Sydney and hopefully we can build that business. And and you're also a a strong and vocal advocate for um, the development and the passing on of craft skills. Give us your thumbnail version of, of your philosophy when it comes to that. Well, it's hard to do in the thumbnail. I know, but, I know. I'm um, just, I'm I, just spent, yeah, well, I spent the, the, the mild workshop was uh, across the road from the museum, which was part of the visitor experience of the museum, but it was also located within a TAFE college. And I'd spent a lot of time talking to kids at, at uh, year 10 level, um, both at schools and tour groups and so on, coming through and looking at what we were doing. And it was interesting to note how the the there's this perception of that skills had a, a bad a bad name, you know, like they're dumb, dirty and dangerous with the three Ds they used to stay. And um, yeah, there's right. a lot of kids, I think, are pushed towards higher education and they get there and they're not overly satisfied with what yep. they've done or, or what they're doing or they or they end up with a mediocre result. And, and a lot of those kids can take on a trade and uh, have a great and meaningful life. You know? Yes. And I think we often romanticise that, you know, certain white-collar jobs have more intellectual content than they actually do. You know, white-collar work can can be dumbed down pretty much in the same way that manufacturing dumbed down trades at the turn of the last century, you know. And uh, so I think that I've, I've tried to be an advocate for that and tried to help um, people understand that... Uh, that that you can have a fulfilling career in in in, in a trade. So you've got to get them at an early age. You know? Many forms. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And I mean, I don't know about you, but Mal, but um, whenever you have a crack and you're on the tools and you maybe have a ham-fisted go at fabricating something to 
make it yeah. work again. Mm. That's a tremendously yeah. satisfying. Yeah. Not everyone's satisfied by that, but yeah, a lot I of certainly. Are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, I definitely. think you know. Again, it's it, it's it's how you perceive what you're doing and yeah. and what it's about. Uh, some people like the challenge of it, but there's a lot going on. You know, there's um, it, it's not it's not a dumb job it, to to have a trade. It requires the physical circumstances in oh, which absolutely. you do that work. Varies too much. It requires, you know, requires provisation, adaptability, circumspection. So if you're someone that likes using your brains at work, you bet. skills are worth taking a fresh look Problem at. Problem solving for everybody. the whole yeah. bit. And yeah. it also opens up a ph- philosophical discussion on how do you classify someone as intelligent or not. There, there are yeah. all kinds of intelligences yep, and correct. some of the smartest people I've met yeah. are tradespeople of various kinds for sure. Yeah. And, and it, it's interesting to see what happens in Germany where you get uh, culturally there's a difference, you know. In Germany, you get uh, a, a, a smart, aspiring young person that wants to be a um, a, a tradesman, and um, in that country, that's a respectable aspiration to have. And it's over fifty percent of sixteen-year-olds into apprenticeship programs. Wow, is that right? Over fifty yeah. percent. Yeah, and it's quite high. And and if you look at um, uh, a lot of the kids that end up in apprenticeships, they they'll do a four-year apprenticeship. They'll do four years on on the tools if they're recognising their company as being worth supporting, they'll the, the, the company will fund an MBA for them. Wow. And and they end up in senior management and they've been paid all the way through. They haven't done a double degree in engineering and end up with a hex debt and yeah. Yeah. And, and then starting off on like fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. They know the culture of the organization from, from the ground up, from the person sweeping the floor to the boss. And they know everything about it, and and they're yeah. potentially working for a Volkswagen or a Mercedes Benz, or yeah. you know, in the car world. Correct. You know, Germany is so uh, full of those brilliant brands to, yeah. to go and work with. Exactly. Yeah. So, and and again, here we just we don't seem to steer kids towards that, and I think it's it's uh, it's unfortunate, and I don't think it's it, it's serving our children well because there's. Yeah. A lot of kids out there that are paying high school fees, the yeah. parents are paying high school fees, and they're not well served by that education experience. That's true. I've, I've, it's a, that's another discussion for another time. But, oh, yeah, totally. But I think there, are, you know, school choices are all about the parents uh, more than the kids. You know, if you really talk to kids about what would you like to do, yeah. uh, that would be a good conversation to have. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of parents with this. I, I, I saw this at the museum, you know, where you'd show people through. I remember once we did an evening for the RACV, and it was a careers thing. The RACV and Kmart were the largest employers of mechanics in the state at the time. Wow. And um, we did a series of presentations, and then this couple came up to me with their son, and mum walked off to go get a cup of coffee, and, and dad said, looked over his shoulder and said, oh, my son would de- dearly love to do what you do, but mum won't let him. And mum's father owned a panel shop, and she doesn't oh, want that for her kids. No. You know? I see. And, I and see. so there's... You know, there's cultural perceptions there, but there is, there seems to be something that says there's this kind of pervasive anxiety among parents that there's only one track for a kid's success and yeah, it runs right. through right. university and so on. It's, I don't think it's right and I don't right. think we're doing the right, we're serving our children well. But also these careers have evolved. You know, they there's, have. There's some yeah, fundamental now. skills that yep. are applied, but the tools you use uh, have evolved and broadened yep. as well. You Correct. Know? It's, it's the technology's no, improved, and yep. an OH and S has yep. improved. You know, as you said before about the the paint availability. Yep. Um, Civilisation has has you know in, ensured that we no longer use yep. uh, the dangerous paints, and if if so, we uh, we protect ourselves. Yep. 
Um, yeah. But I know in your workshop alone, you've got you know English wheel on one side and then the... 3D printing on the other. Precisely. Yeah, it's fabulous. It's fabulous. <laughs> I can't so, think of anything more high-tech than yeah. that. Yeah. But... Um, now, I, I, I think, sadly, time is, is ticking by. Sure. But, Brian, the URL for your website is www.briantantysworkshop.com Fantastic. And there's also Facebook and Instagram if you... Brian Tanty's Workshop uh, Facebook. And you can see the narrative of every build we post regularly on there and some of the stuff we're doing. We we post at warts and all. Um, Everything that we're doing gets posted up on there. Great. So there's a medical section for the warts as well. Yes. (laughs) Any any kind of advice on other growths and... Oh, no, none. (laughs) Okay, fine. I think uh, one thing I've enjoyed in recent weeks was the the buck for the 550. Oh, yeah. That seems to be a big story about its completion and its journey to Sydney. A lot of... a lot of work. That, that we, we scanned Jerry Seinfeld's car. Ah, uh, right. That was done through Joe Cavalieri in the States, who's a big Porsche 550 guru over there and 4Cam in general guru. And um, he he gave me the the not the um, uh, the digital data, but but the hard data. So we ended up with about 300 drawings, and off that information, we were wow. Building um, this Fabulous. buck, and so it, I wanted to build a buck that was authentic to the way they were done in Germany. I, I visited the the um, design um, museum in Munich, and and it and it had the three five six buck up there, and I took some photos, and I was very keen to kind of encapsulate that into the into the build. So we spent five years, or Mark O'Brien, a clay modeler and pattern maker extraordinaire that worked for Holden for many years. Spent five years part-time making that buck for me. So you, you end up with skills to do with timber, yep. um, skills to do with metal, clay. Yep. You, yeah, it's, and it's, and uh, photometrically scanning. We, we can also scan and 3D and rapid prototype work for you in that new workshop. So do you use much 3D printing? We do. You do. Yeah, we yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. I've just uh, I've recommissioning an old uh, power hammer which was used by German coach builders uh, like wow. Wendler. Wow. And um, I was contacted by the grandfather's son uh, of the guy who um, uh, who owned the the parks company that built the power hammers, and he's given me all the data. So we rapid prototype the the. The, uh, the the anvil end wow. of the power hammer, and wow. we're about to recommission that as well. So, so it's not just all, all of that's up online. That's you can amazing. Look at it. So, now, yeah. look, we could seriously, okay. we could sit here until right. you know Brian's under pressure. And we've got a hot white light shining into his eyes. You're we're a very disciplined boat, James. Um, we we do have to move in, but but, but move on. Sorry, um, Brian. We'll talk to you about what's in our garage. This is the section where we look at the car we've been steering during the week. Mal, I'm going to kick it off with you. Um, and you've been a bit cheeky and nominated too, but uh, fire away. Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I had a pretty Apologies, pretty everyone. good week last week. I was down uh, in Melbourne for the lead-up to the Formula One. Uh, on the Wednesday, I think I was among the first cars on the track uh, driving the Alfa Romeo Stelvio SUV, uh, the Quadrifoglio version, uh, in Australia for the first time. And you think an SUV on an F1 track doesn't make much sense, yep. but... Um, we only did a handful of laps, but this is a pretty special car. Really? And uh, right. it shares a lot with the Julia Quadrifoglio. Yep. Uh, and they've, it's translated well to an SUV in the context of an F1 circuit. So yet to drive it on the road, yet to see what it's really right. like so to one, drive. So one-dimensional uh, introduction. Yeah. Yes. But if you're looking for an SUV that's good on an F1 track, it's a good one. Yep. 
but also uh, for context and experience, we also had the chance to drive the Alpha 4C, uh, the Julia Quadrifoglio, the Abarth 595 Competizione, and the Abarth 124 Spider. So the whole Alpha and Abarth. Terrific. Great opportunity. Yeah. Uh, on the track. Um, 4C. Wow. That is a lively piece of work. Yeah. Uh, and that's a car that absolutely polarises opinion. Yeah. There are those that think it needs some power steering and a better suspension. Yeah. I, I'm not of that school. Yeah. I think-, I, I think it's amazing. I think it's like, I've described it as like reaching through the dashboard and feeling what the front wheels are doing. Precisely. Um, it's so good. And yes, it's rattly and it's a little bit uncomfortable, but the connection with the car is impossibly good. I think it gives you the closest thing to what people aim for in motorcycles. Yeah. Uh, So if you're not willing to make a few concessions, go elsewhere. And if you want a similar package with a bit of comfort, buy an Alpine A1. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. That's a great, great choice. But at the other end of the the price spectrum, the Abarth 595 is, I think it's 11 years old now. Yeah. It's, It's just fun. Brilliant. It's fun. You cannot measure that car... In terms of conventional measures like price and zero to a hundred, etc., mm. it's just a lot of little cool things in one. So the, the Mal World Discovery Tour of Melbourne continued, okay. Okay. and you you then <laughs> right. went on to a different brand, yes, but, yes, uh, and a different circuit. Yep. So Mercedes, uh, with the winningest team in F one in recent sure. times, sure. Uh, had a big deal in uh, Melbourne last week. They gave us a preview of the EQC electric uh, SUV yeah, that's right. coming later yes. this year. Super um, important. And then yep. uh, also gave us the chance to have a steer of the C63S at Sandown. Yep. Uh, we've already driven that on the road. James, you uh, drove it at the international launch in I Germany. Did. Yep. That was um, really fun. It was. Yeah. <laughs> and had a, oh, yeah, I had a go on speed on the Autobahn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but I think the focus of this experience was to play with the TrackPace app, yep. uh, which basically puts some pretty awesome telemetry in the in the dashboard. Yeah, it's fabulous, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And gives you the chance to, to sort of calculate calculate your own splits and, and yes. all that sort of thing. Adds another big dimension to a track day, but yep. um, I reckon it can also be used in the real world. Um, I know when I leave my house, there's three ways I can go down the Blue Mountains, Um and they're all pretty close, and I like you guys. Do they all involve probably, roads? They all involve, involve okay. roads. Fantastic. There's a few more ways without roads. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, they're all within, you know, um, they're all rather close in terms of elapsed time. So you'd like to kind of test yourself using this exactly. data capture. Pace yeah. in a C63. Yeah, fabulous. Because... I like to spend as little time as possible driving to work. Yeah, fair enough. Fair anyway, call. All right. But uh, it's a special thing. They've, they've made the car more refined than before. They've softened the suspension up. But driving it on the track, you don't sit there going, oh, geez, it's lost its edge. Right. It's still very exciting. Um, yep. Anyway, that's what I've been driving Terrific. this Good. week. Good on you, Mel. And uh, so, Brian, uh, you've possibly been driving a car this week that you've driven in previous weeks. Correct. But, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but um, explain to us your, your preferred set of wheels. Oh, I've got a uh, a GDS um, um, Malou HSV yep. Malou, which yep. is the uh, four hundred and thirty kilowatt one. Cut. Yeah, it's a it's a great piece of work. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, uh, the guys at the HSV Owners Club say it's in grandpa mode because I I haven't upgraded uh, the, uh, you know the suspension and the and all the stuff that they do, but you know I, I like it the way it is and uh, it's a, a, a great car to drive. I can still put 
2400 by 1200 sheet in the back yes. between the wheel arches. Great, great. Which, is, which you can't do with a lot of modern utes. Have you got and a liner in the tub? I do have a, you, yep, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they all came great. with a liner. So I, I can put gear in there and, uh, and shut the door down and keep it safe. Yeah. But it but it is like a sports ute. It's an incredible car to drive, well-balanced machine. Is this the Brian Tenty workshop? Uh, shop you shop truck. It is. It oh, is fantastic. Christ. Apprentices don't get to drive it. <laughs> no <laughs> way. Because I, I, the thing that struck me at the launch of that drivetrain, uh, I thought this is going to be too much horsepower. H- how can you actually control it? In and HSV did a brilliant job. You know, yeah, they did. Really no did bags of cement job. required. You no, know, on the back. You no. know, that's the that's the myth everyone says. But it's amazing. It does it. Yeah, that traction control is fantastic. It is. Yeah. I remember thinking. Hmm, that'd bolt straight into a ute, but they'll never do it. Yeah. <laughs> One day they yeah. did it. Yeah, they yeah. did it. Are uh, you still? Uh, have you still got the Conti tyres on it? No, no, oh. I didn't. But, but I, I, I had it serviced recently at about thirty. It's got about thirty six thousand k's on it. Cool. I, I had it serviced at thirty two, and the mechanic said to me, "You know," he started laughing. He said, "Brian, you know, what's wrong with this?" He said, "You've used less than five percent of your brake pads." Yeah. And there's virtually nowhere on the disc at 32,000 k. I said, well, I drive it like a normal car. I don't, I don't, <laughs> yes, exactly. Said, no one drives these like a normal car. <laughs> but in the event of an emergency, you're ready to stop really I quickly. Am. I am. It's very good. Yeah, very good. Wow. They'll put you through the windscreen with those, <laughs> those calipers. Well, that's fantastic. The good news is you get to drive it next week as well. I do. That's one. That's right. Oh, um, boy. <laughs> this week, uh, i got to say I've had worse weeks. Um, I went to the launch of the 8th generation 992-911, and that were, a Porsche 911, and that was at the Bend Motorsport Park, which is Talon Bend in South Australia, and I hadn't been there before. What an incredible facility. Um, you know, hotel display of various significant vehicles that rotates on a regular basis. Um, there was a Brock, either SLR 5000 or A9X there, and various other exotic hypercars. But you name it. The best in the world. Three or four different configurations of an enormous track. I think the longest length is claimed to be the second longest fixed race circuit in the world. Wow. Um, and we drove this car. Our review will be up in the next uh, week or so. Um, I'll keep my powder dry until we, we actually publish that. But at the moment, there's a large smile on my on my face. <laughs> it, was a, it was a terrific experience. Um, Mark Webber, Aussie grit Mark Webber was there, and he was doing taxi laps with various people, and that was an eye-opener. It was, it was just a wonderful experience yeah. start to finish. So stand by uh, for the review, and we've got a video on that one as well. So that, that should be good. Um, and with that, it is time to move on to one of our favourite segments, Musk Watch. Right, so in the world um, of Elon, during the week, big news, the launch of the Model Y. I think last week we spoke about the fact that more or less as we were recording the podcast, um, things were being ready to launch the Model Y in California. So yes, that happened. There are four models. There'll be a standard range, long range, a dual motor all-wheel drive and performance. Um, It looks to me, uh, for people looking on YouTube, we'll have images up swimming around us. Um, It looks to me like a jacked up Model 3. Uh, with some tinge of Model X uh, included. Can I add that from side on, it has a, a striking similarity to a uh, supercar Mustang as well. Oh, no. Sorry to have yeah, that's Mustang, right. the Mustang. That's an unfortunate but comparison. have a look. You're probably right. Um, in US dollars from 39k to 60k, but as per the Model 3, the $39,000 car will launch later on. You know, early adopters will be asked to pony up for a little more dough. 
uh, late 2020 for the uh, last three models, early 2021 for the entry model. And look, even though you'd expect there to be a bounce in the share price for Tesla, uh, the stock has dropped 7% uh, over the course of the week from $294 to $273. So I think investors and current shareholders are saying, stick to your knitting. You know, do what you can do well before spreading out further. I wonder also, does the Model Y profess to bring anything new to the table aside from finally we've got a smaller SUV. Yeah, I think it's filling a I think yeah. it's filling a niche but um, I, I haven't I haven't investigated deeply enough to be able to answer that question I must say. Yeah, on the surface it doesn't look like it sort of moves advances the brand yep. or technology uh, particularly much or styling. Well, that's true. It is. It is fairly derivative. I mean, you've got a, a certainly a uniform look across the breadth of the range now. Yeah. But um, one thing I did read during the week is how much Tesla has uh, disrupted things in terms of over-the-air updates and major brands with their electric cars. Maybe Mercedes-Benz with the EQC. Yep. Is it? Um, will First be of ten. Experimenting with that. So. Tesla's been a disruptor in in more ways than one. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fair point. The other thing that's been going on in Elon world is his arm wrestle, which is turning into a fist fight with the SEC in in the USA about his untoward tweets. Uh, he inadvertently, or he went out with a tweet that said they're going to build five hundred thousand cars in twenty nineteen. That's not the case. The SEC, as part of its settlement with him, had previously said all the tweets you put out need to be vetted if they're going to materially shift people's perception of the company. So he did that. It was wrong. The tweet was wrong, so it could not have been vetted. Uh, So they said, we're going to sue you for contempt. And uh, he has come back and said, look, everything that I said had been vetted before. It was all public information. And the share price didn't didn't move. SE said, you're dreaming. Um, it It was an incorrect tweet. Therefore, it could not have been vetted. You have broken the conditions. And they're in the middle of that arm wrestle now. Um, the SEC actually said, and you, you will put a link, I think, in the show notes off to their um, submission, Musk's contention that the potential size of a car company's production for the year could not be reasonably judged as material borders on the ridiculous. So they've come in a very plain language kind of response. It's interesting to read. I to read, yeah. You'd expect it to be full of legal mumbo-jumbo, but it's like... Not at all. It basically reads like Elon... You've been naughty. You've been naughty. You've you been a dill. naughty boy. Yeah. We told you not to do this. Put the phone you did down. It. Put the phone down. Log off. Yeah. Stop Stop doing the Twitter thing. <laughs> the naughty corner is over there. <laughs> exactly. You petulant child. Yes. <laughs> so the yardstick that we use for production is Bloomberg's uh, Model 3 production tracker. Tesla's famously cagey about the number of cars um, it builds per week. Uh, so it's at 5896 for the week. That's up 83. So they're very much in this steady as she goes. That's their run rate. Just sub 6,000 seems to be what they're producing each week. And it's a bit of a barometer in terms of how they're going production-wise. But the share price is, is not in a happy place um, at the moment. So the I think some shareholders are wising up and saying all this bigger and bigger and growing and growing news, just stabilise the business and get it running and doing the things you're doing now well before taking these next steps. I think that sentiment is coming through pretty clearly. Are they still using the tent, the marquee? Yeah, the wedding marquee next to the um, main factory in Fremont. Uh, No, not in Fremont. Where was the Numi plant in... Oh, anyway, California. So they've got that kind of excess space to the side. As far as I know, the wedding marquee is still in play. Right, okay. Mm. All right. Now, with that, I think we've reached the finish line. Uh, and thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, Pleasure. thank you. And thank you, Mel. 
Thank you, James. Um, and thanks, as always, to our producer, Mr. Pritchard, for his sterling efforts. Uh, you can join the conversation by searching for Cars Guide on Facebook and Instagram using the hashtag CGPodcast or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. You can listen to and watch us on YouTube, so jump into the comments with our regulars and be heard. Um, if you're enjoying Tools in the Shed, please let other people know and please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast. Until next week, I don't know about you, but car puns drive me crazy. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs>